a new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of these families' crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Rosanna crept quietly through the forest, anticipation tingling through every nerve of her body. The 21-year-old woman was in love with a dashing 18-year-old named Jauncey. Meeting him in secret, in the dark of the woods, only made their encounters more thrilling. Rosanna knew her family didn't approve of their courtship, but she couldn't resist Jauncey. When she spotted him crossing a dry creek bed coming towards her, Rosanna's trepidation faded away. Jauncey took Rosanna in his arms. It was a chilly autumn night, but they began to undress, not wanting to waste a moment of their time together. As Jauncey kissed her, he told her everything she wanted to hear. He promised that he was going to marry her and that they would soon be happy together. But a moment later, Rosanna heard the heavy stomp of men's boots. She turned to see three of her brothers, Tolbert, Farmer, and Jim, clamoring through the brush towards them. Rosanna could tell by their expressions that it would be useless to argue with them. Before she could even try, her brothers grabbed Jauncey and loaded him onto a horse. The men left Rosanna alone in the forest clearing. She was cold and terrified, but also resolute. No matter what her family thought, Rosanna McCoy was determined to be with Jauncey Hatfield. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore passionate crimes. How does a marriage progress from husband and wife to killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we are doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. In the highlands of the Appalachia, visitors can find some of the most gorgeous scenery in America. But the area's natural beauty is overshadowed by a bleak history. 
The Hatfield-McCoy families lived among the hills surrounding the Tug Fork River. The waterway marks the border between West Virginia and Kentucky. The feud between the two families spanned from 1865 until 1891. Since then, it has inspired hundreds of newspaper articles, dozens of books, and a handful of movies and television series. The violence has commanded the public's fascination for well over a hundred years. It is not clear why this squabble has received so much attention. The participants weren't celebrities. The crimes they committed, while cruel, were no more horrifying than many other murders reported at the time. But perhaps the dispute has stayed in the public consciousness because the violence seems so senseless. These families were neighbors. Many participants were related to each other by marriage, some by blood. They should have been helping each other survive the brutalities of frontier life. Instead, they let petty slights turn into tragic bloodshed. In this episode, we'll learn how tensions mounted between the Hatfields and McCoys during the Civil War and in the decades after, until they erupted in 1882 with a gruesome murder that shocked the residents of Tug Fork. Next week, we'll discuss the bloody acts of retaliation and the court trials that followed. When the feud began in 1865, 25-year-old William Anderson Hatfield and 40-year-old Randolph McCoy were the proud patriarchs of their respective families. Historians name these men as the primary engineers of the discord. William Anderson Hatfield went by ants, or commonly, devil ants. He was given this nickname by his own mother, Nancy Vance Hatfield. According to one apocryphal story, Nancy witnessed her unruly 15-year-old son fighting a mountain lion with his bare hands and remarked that he was not afeard of no kind of varmint nor of the devil himself. Devil Ants was born in 1839, the fourth of 18 children, on the West Virginia side of Tug Fork Valley. Living in a border state, Devil Ants was at the center of America's conflict when the Civil War broke out in 1861. West Virginia remained part of the Union, but Devil Ants' loyalties evidently did not align with the state. Once the Civil War started, the 23-year-old enlisted in the Confederate Army and served as first lieutenant in the 45th Battalion Virginia Infantry. In 1863, as it became clear that the Confederacy would lose the war, Devil Ants deserted the Army and returned to Tuck Fork, where he formed a militia group with his uncle, Jim Vance. They called themselves the Logan Wildcats. The group drove through the mountains on horseback, meeting out vigilante justice and attacking Union sympathizers throughout the area. One such sympathizer was 37-year-old Harmon McCoy, brother to eventual feudist Randolph McCoy. Harmon lived on the Kentucky side of the Tug Fork River. Kentucky citizens were divided during the Civil War but the majority of men fought for the Union, including Harmon. Despite being a former slave owner, he served in the Union Army's 39th Kentucky Mounted Infantry Regiment until he was honorably discharged in December of 1864. On his journey back to Tug Fork, Harmon encountered Jim Vance on the road. As Harmon passed him, Jim Vance sneered and warned him that Devil Ants and the Logan Wildcats were gunning for him. Vance had recently lost his brother in the Civil War. He was looking for someone to blame, and Harmon represented a convenient target. The Logan Wildcats may have also carried a previous grudge from his allegiance to another of their vigilante targets, Union General William Francis. In fact, some historians of the feud cite William's murder at the hands of the Wildcats in 1863 as the true beginning of the conflict. A few days after receiving Vance's threat, Harmon went out to his yard to fetch water from the well. He heard a shot and felt a bullet whiz past him. He crouched to the ground and crept back into the house. His wife, Patty, urged him to go into hiding for a few days to give bitter prejudices 
time to heal. Harmon agreed. He gathered supplies, ammunition, and provisions, and set out into the frigid cold. He set up camp in a cave about a mile from his home. The Logan Wildcats did not give up their pursuit of Harmon. According to some accounts, they followed footprints left in the snow by his 13-year-old daughter, Mary, who had gone to warn her father that the Wildcats were patrolling the area. Other accounts say that the Wildcats followed the footprints of the McCoy family's former slave, Pete, who had gone to replenish Harmon's food supply. In any case, on January 7, 1865, the Logan Wildcats tracked Harmon McCoy to his cave hideout. Harmon threw the blanket off his body and began to massage his aching leg, which he had fractured in the war. The bones had healed, but the pain lingered, especially in the cold. He didn't need a reminder of the battlefield. He felt as if the war had followed him home. Even here, he might be surrounded by the enemy at any moment. His breath rattled. On top of everything else, he was coming down with pneumonia. He longed for the warmth of his bed and his wife. As he mulled over the risks of returning home, he heard footsteps outside. Harmon froze. He raised his rifle and limped towards the mouth of the cave. He hoped he could sneak out before his pursuers found him. But as he stepped outside, he heard a crack of a rifle pierce the air and felt a powerful blow to his chest, knocking him off balance. He looked down to see blood spilling from an open bullet wound. As he died, Harmon thought of his five children and his wife, Patty, who was pregnant with their sixth. He had come home so eager to see his family and restore the bond weakened by his absence during the war. But now, he would never have the chance. Later, Patty found her husband's body draped over the log of a fallen tree. Most residents of Tug Fork believed Jim Vance had murdered him. They were also suspicious of Jim's nephew, Devil Lance, as the two men led the Logan Wildcats together. But Devil Lance claimed to be home in bed at the time Harmon was murdered. Despite these suspicions, nobody was ever charged for Harmon's murder. Except for the perpetrators, there were no witnesses and no physical evidence linking anyone to the death. Some historians claim that Harmon's neighbors ignored the crime because they felt that the Union sympathizer got what he deserved. But the reality seems more complicated. Before I continue with the psychology, please note that I am not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for this episode. Many of Harmon McCoy's neighbors also served in the Union Army, even some members of Devil Ants Hatfield's family. According to Civil War historian Eric T. Dean, some of these returning veterans were suffering from severe PTSD, apathy, and emotional numbness. It may be that people were horrified by Harmon's death, but also too overwhelmed to seek justice. At that point, the war had already claimed hundreds of thousands of lives. The community was traumatized by the constant guerrilla warfare tactics of militia groups like the Logan Wildcats and the retaliations from the Union Army. That winter, the war was finally winding down. Nobody wanted to dwell on another death. They were ready to move on. However, the tension between the Hatfield and McCoy families did not disappear. Over the next few years, various members of the families took each other to court over small infractions, such as trespassing or destroying beehives. But for a while, they were content to let the legal system handle their problems instead of resorting to violence. When the Civil War ended in the spring of 1865, 25-year-old Devil Ants settled down with his wife, Levisi, and resumed a life of hunting, farming, timbering, and distilling whiskey. Family responsibilities kept Devil Ants busy in the years after the Civil War. By 1869, 30-year-old Ants and his wife, Levisi, already had four children 
and would go on to have nine more. As Devil Lance faced the challenges of fatherhood, he didn't have much outside support. His own father, Ephraim Hatfield, gave five of his other sons attractive land when they reached adulthood. But due to some unknown grudge, he refused to give any land to Devil Lance. Devil Lance's strained relationship with his father may have contributed to his prideful, combative nature. In a time when land ownership was one of the most potent symbols of a man's worth, Devil Lance had to make do with the small plot his wife had received from her father. Devil Lance was especially frustrated to have so little land because his closest neighbor, Perry Klein, had so much. Envy is one of the most basic human emotions, but it is often driven by more complicated feelings of inferiority and anxiety. When a man perceives himself to be less well-off than people around him, he is more likely to feel shame and stress about his status. Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, experts in the field of public health, have linked these anxieties to higher levels of violence and delinquency. Perry Klein was about a decade younger than Devil Lance. Perry's parents died when he was just nine years old, and he had inherited 5,000 acres of land from his father. According to the Klein family, Devil Lance regularly trespassed on Perry's land to steal timber. But the official property boundaries were murky, and Devil Lance claimed he had a right to be there. Around 1870, Perry Klein agreed to sell Devil Lance some of his land, perhaps in an effort to resolve any animosity between them. Although the trade was not recorded, Devil Ants immediately took possession of the land, even moving into the Kleins' former homestead. Soon after, Devil Ants came across Perry Klein timbering on the land he had just purchased. There may have been some confusion over precisely which acres Perry Klein had agreed to sell to Devil Ants, but instead of chalking it up to an innocent misunderstanding, Devil Ants decided to take Perry Klein to court for trespassing. The men settled out of court. According to the terms of the settlement, Perry Klein agreed to give all 5,000 acres of his land to Devil Ants. It's not clear why Perry Klein agreed to such a harsh penalty for such a small offense, but his writing suggests that he felt intimidated into doing so. After the settlement, Perry Klein slunk away to the nearby town of Pikeville. With this victory, Devil Ants became one of the largest landholders in Tug Fork Valley. Devil Ants' behavior ruffled a few feathers in Tug Fork. Perry's father had been a wealthy and influential person in the region. Many residents were sympathetic to the Kleins, especially Randolph McCoy, who lived just across the Tug Fork River on the Kentucky side of the valley. Born in 1825, 45-year-old Randolph McCoy had one thing in common with Devil Ants. He had not inherited any land from his father. Instead, he lived on a small farm that had been passed down to his wife, Sarah. Unlike Devil Ants, Randolph McCoy refused to bully his way into greater land ownership. Such behavior was abhorrent to him. His wife, Sarah, was a devout Christian and menacing tactics didn't come naturally to him. He was known to be more of a sour old gossip than a ruffian. Even if Randolph had been inclined to take someone else's land, he wouldn't have targeted Perry Klein, with whom he shared close family ties. Several of Perry Klein's siblings had married McCoys. In fact, Perry's sister, Patty, was the widow of the murdered Harmon McCoy. The injustice to Perry Klein was yet another insult added to the injury of Harmon's death. And soon, these insults would be too much for Randolph McCoy to bear. Coming up, we'll see how Randolph McCoy's grudge against the Hatfields pushed the families towards an inevitable confrontation. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to this crime of passion. The Hatfield-McCoy feud was ignited in 1865 with the death of 37-year-old Harmon McCoy. He was likely killed by a 33-year-old man named Jim Vance, a Confederate sympathizer who was angry about Harmon's service with the Union Army. Vance may have had help from his nephew, 26-year-old Devil Ants Hatfield. Harmon's older brother, Randolph McCoy, did not initially seek retaliation. He may have had too many other worries to pursue vengeance, tending to his wife and 16 children. But it was the first slight in what would become an avalanche of grudges. Randolph McCoy descended from some of the original pioneers of Tug Fork Valley, but Randolph's father had to sell off their family farm in order to pay various fines and debts. Therefore, Randolph inherited no land from his father. He and his wife, Sarah, lived in a tiny cabin in the Blackberry District of Kentucky, about two miles south of the Tug Fork River. They had very little land and had almost nothing to pass down to their children. Research conducted by scientists Paul A. Tiffin, Mark S. Pierce, and Louise Parker show that men who have gone through a downward social trajectory experience significantly greater mental health issues than men whose social status remains the same over time. The loss of status often gives rise to feelings of shame and distrust, according to Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett. For Randolph McCoy, the daily struggles of poverty only added to the usual stresses of trying to raise a large family in the harsh wilderness of the mountains. In the late 1800s Appalachia, many family survival depended on the success of their small-scale farming and herding operations. Randolph McCoy's family was no different. Raising hogs was critical to their livelihood. A single 400-pound animal might make the difference between getting through the winter and starving to death. Therefore, farmers took their hogs very seriously. A Kentucky Circuit Court judge noted that he'd convicted more men for stealing hogs than for murder. In September of 1878, 52-year-old Randolph was penning his hogs so that he could castrate the piglets. In the middle of his work, a sow broke through the fence and ran off with six of her piglets. Randolph let her go. The hogs were territorial animals and didn't often stray far from home. But when they hadn't returned by that winter, Randolph mounted a search. He was confident he would be able to recognize the sow if he found her. Farmers marked their hogs by cutting notches into the animal's ears. Each farmer had his own distinct mark. Randolph tracked the hog to the farm of his nephew, Tom Stafford. Stafford didn't know who the hogs belonged to, but he had been keeping them penned up with his own pigs until the owner came forward. Since it was nearly night, Randolph didn't want to go through the trouble of dragging the hogs back home in the dark. He knocked on Tom's door and let his nephew know that he'd come to retrieve them the next morning. But not long after Randolph left, another man, Floyd Hatfield, showed up at Tom's door. 29-year-old Floyd was a cousin of Devil Ants Hatfield. He also happened to be Tom Stafford's brother-in-law. He claimed that a few of his hogs had crossed over the frozen Tug Fork River and had gotten stranded on Tom's property. Tom warned Floyd that Randolph McCoy claimed ownership over those same hogs, but Floyd didn't listen. He rounded up the livestock and herded them across the river to his farm. When Randolph heard about this the following day, he was furious. He immediately went to confront Floyd. The men checked the hogs' ears, but the brands were so scuffed up and scarred over, nobody could tell whose marks they were. Floyd Hatfield kept possession of the hogs, but Randolph McCoy promised that the matter wasn't over. Randolph took his claim to another Hatfield cousin, confusingly also named Ants Hatfield. 
This cousin went by the name Preacher Ants, in contrast to Devil Ants. Although he was a Hatfield by name and blood, 57-year-old Preacher Ants lived in the same district as Randolph McCoy, on the Kentucky side of the Tug Fork River rather than the West Virginia side, where most of the other Hatfields resided. Preacher Ants led the congregation of the Old Pond Creek Baptist Church, where both Hatfields and McCoys went to worship. He was seen as a neutral party among the families, and as a justice of the peace, he was also accepted by both families as a qualified arbiter over the hog conflict. Preacher Ants organized a hearing at his log cabin. Farmers from all over Tug Fork Valley came to see the disagreement play out. Preacher Ants called for everyone to cast their weapons aside. The men grudgingly laid their rifles and pistols against the wall, and the trial began. Testimony went as everyone expected, with the McCoy witnesses swearing that the hog belonged to Randolph McCoy and the Hatfield witnesses insisting that it was Floyd's. One witness deviated from family lines, Bill Staten. Staten was a cousin of Randolph McCoy, but his sister was married to Ellison Hatfield. Ellison Hatfield wasn't just Staten's brother-in-law. They were best friends. Staten testified that he had personally watched Floyd brand the hog in question. The McCoys were furious. Randolph McCoy's nephew, Paris, called Staten a damned liar. But Staten stuck to his testimony. Once the witnesses were through, it was time for the jury to come to a decision. Preacher Ants was determined to be impartial. He had selected a jury of six men with Hatfield affiliations and six men from the McCoy clan. Perhaps he felt that if the trial ended in a hung jury, the men might both feel vindicated and let the matter drop with no hard feelings. But predicting jury loyalties proved to be an impossible task. One of the jurors, Selkirk McCoy, was yet another cousin of Randolph McCoy, but he had served in the Confederate Army with Devil Ants Hatfield, and he worked on Devil Ants' timber crew. With Selkirk joining in with the Hatfields, the jury turned in a verdict of 7-5 to five against Randolph McCoy. The McCoys were astonished and infuriated, Randolph cursed the verdict, but his wife Sarah convinced her husband to accept the outcome. Although he groused about the injustice, Randolph allowed Floyd to take home the prized hog. The feud could have stopped there in its tracks, but Randolph McCoy had nine sons and countless nephews who did not have Randolph's passive temperament. To them, the verdict wasn't just about a stolen pig, it was a matter of family honor and betrayal. Harvard Medical School psychiatrist James Gilligan spent several years as the medical director for the Massachusetts prison system. He wrote that the inmates' violent acts were nearly always triggered by a recent humiliation. The men used violence as a way to recover their pride after a loss of face. The aftermath of the hog trial showed that the McCoys were determined to punish the Hatfields for injury to their egos. From then on, flare-ups of violence between the families became a regular occurrence. The McCoys directed most of their ire at Bill Staten, who had sided with his Hatfield in-laws over his cousin, Randolph McCoy. After the trial, Staten tried to steer clear of his angry relations by staying on the West Virginia side of the Tug Fork River, but run-ins were unavoidable. One autumn afternoon, Bill Staten was hunting deer in the woods with Ellison Hatfield. Ellison, like his brother Devil Ants, was a Confederate veteran locally hailed as a war hero. Unlike Devil Ants, Ellison had a reputation for being even-tempered and fair-minded. He was a deacon in Preacher Ants' Baptist Church, and he was known as the peacekeeper of the Hatfield family. The men came upon two McCoy brothers, Paris and squirrel-hunting Sam. The McCoys bristled when they saw Bill Staten, remembering his traitorous testimony at the hog trial. 
Squirrel hunting Sam aimed his rifle and shot the gun right out of Bill Staten's hands. Then he dropped his own gun and threw himself at his cousin. They scuffled on the ground until Ellis and Hatfield pulled them apart and shoved squirrel hunting Sam away. The men separated without any serious injury that day, but the next few months were punctuated with similar skirmishes. On June 18, 1880, Paris and squirrel hunting Sam again crossed paths with Bill Staten in the woods. This time, Staten was alone. There are several different accounts of what followed on that day. According to McCoy historians, Bill Staten saw Paris and Sam first, and he ambushed them, shooting Paris through the hip. Paris felt the bullet rip through the flesh of his hip, and he snarled in surprise and pain. He turned to see Bill Staten barreling towards him. Acting on pure instinct, Paris raised his own gun and fired back, hitting Staten in the chest. Paris's pulse raced as he watched the blood spurt from the man's wound. But Staten wasn't stopping. He lumbered toward Paris and began to pummel him with his fists. Paris threw up his arms, grabbing Bill by the shoulders as he stumbled backward. He clawed at Bill, drawing blood. Bill bared his teeth, rabid. Suddenly, Bill lunged forward and tore at Paris's jugular vein with his teeth. Paris began to panic. He felt sticky blood pulling at his collar. He gripped the other man's jaws and tried to pry him loose. Paris turned his desperate eyes towards his brother, squirrel hunting Sam, who watched the fight from a few feet away. Paris couldn't speak. He couldn't manage to do anything but grunt. Regardless, Sam got the message and raised his pistol. Sam wasn't nicknamed Squirrel Hunting Sam for nothing. He had an aim so sharp he could pick squirrels out of trees as they leapt from limb to limb. Now, he was aiming at a larger target. With one shot from Sam's gun, a bullet pierced Bill Staten's skull. Paris felt Bill's body jerk against him, then go limp. Paris breathed a sigh of relief. Bill Staten had finally gotten what was coming to him. Historians more sympathetic to the Hatfields tell a different version of Bill Staten's death. They say that squirrel hunting Sam and Paris were the first aggressors and that Bill was minding his own business when they attacked. Regardless of the exact details, historians agreed that squirrel hunting Sam shot and killed Bill Staten. Sam and Paris ran off, leaving Bill Staten's body to grow cold on the forest path. But Paris now had a bullet wound in his hip and gouges across his face, obvious injuries indicating that he'd been in a fight. When Bill Staten's body was discovered a few days later, people made the connection between Paris McCoy's injuries and Staten's death. The Hatfield clan responded quickly. Devil Lance's older brother, Valentine, nicknamed Wall Hatfield, was a justice of the peace for the West Virginia district in which the murder had occurred. He drew up warrants for the arrest of Paris and Sam, and the pair were soon apprehended. Next, we'll discuss Paris and Sam McCoy's trial for murder and how it would launch the families into a bloody cycle of violence that would earn them notoriety across America. Now back to the story. After a series of altercations between the McCoy and Hatfield families, the feud was cemented on July 18, 1880, with the death of Bill Staten, a Hatfield sympathizer, at the hands of Paris McCoy and his brother, squirrel hunting Sam. The men were both charged with murder. The deceased Bill Staten's best friend and brother-in-law, Ellison Hatfield, was particularly determined to see Paris and Sam brought to justice. Ellison was among the witnesses who testified against the McCoy brothers at trial. 
But ultimately, the jury acquitted the pair on the grounds of self-defense. According to some accounts, Devil Ants Hatfield went out of his way to pressure the jury to acquit Paris and Sam. He reportedly did so in an effort to defuse some of the tension building between the families. If it's true that Devil Ants arranged for Paris and Sam's acquittal, the McCoys apparently didn't appreciate the gesture. They were angry that Sam and Paris had been charged with murder in the first place. It seemed that nothing could assuage the wounds left in the aftermath of Harmon McCoy's murder, the harassment of Perry Klein, and the hog trial. But in August of 1880, Election Day provided an enjoyable diversion for residents of the Blackberry District of Kentucky. Election Day wasn't just a chance for people to select their favorite candidates. It was an opportunity to eat, drink, and socialize with neighbors. The women, unable to cast ballots, brought baked goods to hand out in a show of support for their preferred elected officials, and the men brought plenty of moonshine. Only Kentucky residents could vote in Blackberry's elections, but the district's West Virginian neighbors often showed up to be spectators or to try to influence voters. The communities were so close together that Kentucky's elections affected them too. That year, one of the polling locations was set up at the home of 76-year-old Jeremiah Hatfield. Jeremiah was a great uncle to Devil Ants, though he lived on the Kentucky side of the Tug Fork River. Naturally, Devil Ants and the rest of the clan showed up to be a part of the amusement. The McCoys also arrived to cast their votes, but luckily, nobody was in a fighting mood. Among them was Rosanna McCoy, the fourth daughter of Randolph and Sarah McCoy. 21-year-old Rosanna was described as a beautiful woman, tall and slender with dark eyes and long auburn hair that looked golden in the sunlight. 18-year-old John C. Hatfield must have met Rosanna before, but he had never taken much notice of her until that election day. John C. Hatfield was Devil Lance's oldest son, he was known as a dapper playboy. He liked to dress well, he liked to drink, and he liked to chase women. That day, he and Rosanna McCoy got to talking. In the late afternoon, while the families began to depart, Rosanna and Jauncey snuck off into the woods and spent the evening together. As night set in and passion abated, Rosanna grew afraid. She didn't want to return home and face her father. Jauncey agreed to take her to the Hatfield home. He promised that he would marry her and that everything would be all right. Devil Lance Hatfield didn't mind having Rosanna stay with the family, but by most accounts, he strongly objected to his son marrying a McCoy. Meanwhile, Randolph McCoy was furious he sent Rosanna several messages demanding that she return home. Rosanna refused, holding out hope that Jauncey would marry her. But he didn't. Either he wouldn't defy his father, or he didn't want to be tied down. After a few months, Rosanna finally left the Hatfield homestead and returned to her family. By that time, she was pregnant. Being pregnant and unmarried wasn't the end of the world. Puritanism didn't run as deep in the southern mountains as it did in the northeastern part of the country. There weren't many churches in the undeveloped wilderness of Kentucky and West Virginia, and it wasn't uncommon for couples to start a life together before they had a chance to make it to the altar. The community might not have judged Rosanna. Unfortunately, her father did. Randolph kicked her out of the house. She moved in with a widowed aunt about half a mile up the river. Although John C. Hatfield didn't marry Rosanna, he still wanted to see her. The couple continued to meet secretly in the woods. When Randolph heard about this, he sent his sons Tolbert, Farmer, and Jim to put a stop to it. Rosanna's brothers were all too happy to interrupt the couple's clandestine rendezvous. Tolbert had gotten himself deputized and he arrested Jauncey for carrying a concealed weapon. 
It was a dubious charge given that most men of the area never left the house without a firearm. But the McCoys didn't care. They carried Jauncey off, intending to take him to the Pikeville jail. Rosanna was terrified that her brothers might kill Jauncey. She ran to the nearby farm of her neighbor and cousin, Tom Stafford. She borrowed a horse and raced bareback to the Hatfields farm, where she called on Devil Ants to rescue his son. Devil Ants gathered up a posse of Hatfield brothers, sons, and nephews. The group used shortcuts to intercept the McCoys on the road to Pikeville. Outnumbered, Rosanna's brothers were forced to give up their captive. Relations between Rosanna and Jauncey soured soon after. In the spring of 1881, he began to pursue a different McCoy, Rosanna's 16-year-old cousin, Nancy. Unlike Rosanna, Nancy didn't have a father to criticize the match. She was the daughter of Harmon McCoy, the Union soldier who had been murdered by the Logan Wildcats in 1865, not long before Nancy was born. Nancy's mother, Patty, however, did oppose the marriage. As the wife of Harmon McCoy and sister of Perry Klein, she had more reason than anyone to hate the Hatfields. But Nancy was a headstrong girl, and she married Jauncey in May of 1881 without her mother's approval. That same spring, Rosanna gave birth to her baby, a daughter named Sarah Elizabeth. Tragically, the infant died after contracting measles, then pneumonia, at just eight months old. For months afterward, Rosanna would spend hours each day sitting by the baby's grave. She would never have any more children, and she would never marry. This time of grief was also a time of relative calm between the families. But by the next election day, on August 8, 1882, tempers flared once again. As they had done two years prior, dozens of members of the Hatfield and McCoy families gathered at the polling grounds in Blackberry District. Everyone seemed to be in high spirits, Tom Stafford, who had family connections to both the Hatfields and the McCoys, was on the ballot that day. Folks were eager to support him. Many of the McCoys were also relieved to discover that the most despised members of the Hatfield clan had stayed home, including Devil Ants and his son, Jauncey. The McCoys had every reason to enjoy the festivities, but Randolph McCoy's 28-year-old son, Tolbert, was in a dark mood. Tolbert was described as one of the most hot-tempered members of the McCoy family. He became particularly angry when he drank. That day, alcohol was flowing freely, applejack and corn liquor. There may have also been a genetic basis for Tolbert's frequent bouts of fury. Many modern-day descendants of the McCoy family have been diagnosed with von Hippel and Dow disease. This rare genetic disorder causes tumors in the adrenal gland, which can then cause the body to produce excess adrenaline. If Randolph's sons suffered from the same disease, they may have been frequently overloaded with fight or flight hormones and easily provoked. A trivial thing set Tolbert off. He accused a Hatfield relative of owing him money for a fiddle he'd sold him. The men began to argue. Ellison Hatfield arrived to stop the fight. Ellison, the well-liked Confederate war hero, Baptist Deacon, and respectable brother of Devil Ants, might have been successful, but the McCoys were still angry at Ellison specifically for testifying against squirrel hunting Sam and Paris McCoy in their trial for murdering Bill Staten. Of course, they were also still angry at all the Hatfields collectively for Jauncey Hatfield's treatment of Rosanna and his seduction of Nancy, for Floyd Hatfield's victory in the hog trial, for Devil Ance's possession of Perry Klein's property, and for the Logan Wildcats' murder of Harmon McCoy. According to some accounts, Ellison tried to defuse the situation with humor 
he took off his straw hat and offered it to Tolbert in lieu of the price for the fiddle. He said that it would at least give Tolbert something to feed his cows. Humorless, Tolbert shouted back, I'm hell on earth. Ellison replied, You're a damn hog. Tolbert's pride could not withstand one more insult. He pulled out his jackknife and stabbed Ellison through the ribs. Ellison was hurt, but he managed to pull out his own blade and slashed at Tolbert's head. The knife glanced across Tolbert's ear. At that point, Ellison lost his grip on the knife. He began attacking with his fists. He was bigger than Tolbert and would have had a good chance of overpowering him in a fair fight, but Tolbert still had his knife. Tolbert began to stab Ellison again and again. Tolbert's brother, Bill McCoy, briefly entered the fray to stab Ellison with his own blade. Then he ran off into the woods. Tolbert kept stabbing and one of the blows pierced through Ellison's stomach, puncturing his liver. Ellison Hatfield desperately grasped a nearby rock and lifted it up, intending to bash Tolbert's skull. At that point, another McCoy brother, Farmer, grabbed a pistol and shot Ellison in the back. Ellison went still. As he collapsed, he muttered, I'm shot and shot for dead. Tolbert suddenly came to his senses. He dropped his weapon as a number of angry Hatfields surrounded him and Farmer. They also grabbed 18-year-old Bud McCoy, who hadn't even joined his brothers in the fight. Perhaps they mistook him for his older brother, Bill, who had jabbed Ellison with his pocket knife before disappearing into the woods. The rest of the Hatfields fashioned a stretcher out of an old blanket and used it to carry the badly wounded Ellison Hatfield to a nearby house to receive medical attention. Preacher Anse Hatfield, the Blackberry District Justice of the Peace, instructed a pair of constables to take Tolbert, Farmer, and Bud McCoy to the Pikeville Jail. Randolph McCoy accompanied them, anticipating he'd need to hire a lawyer for his son's defense. It was a 25-mile journey and dangerous to travel the narrow ridges and mountain paths after dark. So the party stopped to rest for the night before continuing the journey the next morning. By then, Devil Lance had heard what happened to his brother, Ellison. He went to Kentucky at daybreak, where Ellison was still clinging to his life, despite the 26 knife wounds and one bullet hole that marred his torso. Devil Lance then gathered up all the Hatfields and family supporters he could. They set off to find the constables transferring the McCoys to prison. Devil Lance's older brother, Wall Hatfield, found them first. He explained to Randolph McCoy and the constables that he wanted them to return to the Blackberry District. He felt that as a practical matter, the charges should be brought in the district where the crime had taken place. Wall was about to take custody over the men when Devil Lance arrived with his posse. Wall had been trying to act as the rational lawman, but Ellison was his brother too. When Devil Ants commanded all Hatfields to fall in line, Wall relented and let Devil Ants take charge. They loaded the prisoners onto a corn sled. Terrified for his sons, Randolph McCoy took off for Pikeville, still hopeful that he might find a lawyer there to assist them. Devil Ants and his posse dragged the prisoners across the Tug Fork River into West Virginia and marched them to an empty, ramshackle schoolhouse a mile from the riverbank. They waited there, guns pointed at the three McCoy brothers, as messengers went back and forth to get updates on Ellison Hatfield's condition. Bud McCoy shivered in terror. He was only 18. He barely understood why he was supposed to hate the Hatfields. He hadn't even participated in the stabbing or shooting of Ellison Hatfield. It had been his brothers, Tolbert, Farmer, and Bill. He knew that Devil Ants had sons of his own, 
some about Bud's age. He prayed that the old Hatfield patriarch would show him some mercy. But as he listened to the Hatfields joke about lynching and speculate about the most painful place to shoot a prisoner, he began to lose hope that mercy was on anyone's mind. Daylight was fading. Eerie shadows filled the schoolhouse. Bud tried to choke back his rising panic. He heard someone approaching from outside. He looked fearfully up as the door swung open. To his astonishment, he saw his mother, Sarah McCoy, standing in the entryway. She looked more terrified than he felt. 53-year-old Sarah McCoy had come to beg for the lives of her sons. She had brought Tolbert's wife, Mary, and their four-month-old baby, Cora, with her. The women dropped to their knees in front of Devil Ants and Wall. They pleaded with the Hatfields to release their kin. Sarah didn't try to excuse her son's attack on Ellison Hatfield, but she argued that they should be tried in a fair court of law. According to witnesses, Devil Ants was unmoved by the women's attempts to reason with him. He simply told them, You needn't beg, and you needn't cry. If Ellison dies, your boys has got to die. Thanks again for tuning in to Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with part two of the Hatfield and McCoy feud story. We'll discuss the aftermath of Ellison Hatfield's stabbing and the cycle of violence that it perpetuated. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Michael Langsner. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, and Maggie Admire. Crimes of Passion is written by Christina Pamies. I'm Lainey Hobbs. <laughs> <laughs>